welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today are two guests who are really interesting, Tamika Butler and Rashida Richardson. Um, and they're here to talk about smart city tech and all of the different issues around that. So Tamika and Rashida, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so the, the timing of this is that you guys both just joined the board of directors of Lacuna Technologies, which is a company that we work with and it's a really interesting tech startup that builds digital tools for cities so they can figure out how to both set their policies around transportation and how you actually enforce it digitally. Um, but before we even get to that, we'd love to just give give the audience, um, you know, some background on each of you. So I don't know, Tamika, you know, to tell us kind of how you got from there to here. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I am a, a good Midwestern kid from Nebraska, and I I entered an, an understanding of the tech world when I went to law school at Stanford. Um, practice civil rights law, was a civil rights lawyer for a few years in, in San Francisco where Rashida and I passed actually crossed, um, and I, I had a, a fellowship after law school, this Cadden Fellowship, and my my fellowship was to open up a workers' rights clinic, a one-stop shop uh, for black workers in San Francisco. And through that work, I was spending a ton of time in Bayview Hunters Point, and it was right when the T-Line had just started, and just seeing the way in which I couldn't talk to anybody about their civil rights employment issues if I wasn't able to first articulate my opinion on this transit line yeah. and and seeing the way that transit was just this through line to other social justice issues. Um, the mayor here in LA has said before, tran transportation is the prism through which we should all see other see all other issues. And I think for me, um, you know, I've, I've made this circuitous path. I, I was a, an executive director of a, a bicycle coalition, executive director of a nonprofit um, that was a land trust. So I've done a lot of things that relate to city building. Um, and I've just found this, this spot that I love in this overlap of transportation, race, um, equity, and, and technology. And through my work as a consultant, um, in Los Angeles, I intersected with Lacuna, um, working on some emerging mobility, um, you know, scooters um, projects, which is a big part of my portfolio. And and uh, you know, for for me, I've had a lot of different jobs, but at the center of all of them is that I'm a black woman, and so how I see all of these issues um, through my blackness is is what's most important to me. Yeah. Do, do you feel like people understand and see transportation as an equity issue, as a social justice issue? Or do you think that when, when you say that, are they surprised? Um, I think it depends on the person, right? Like, I, I, I think there are some people who are like, I don't get it. Um, and, and I think that is the way the, the field and the space has traditionally been. And I think there's an emerging group of folks who realize that transportation and racial justice are intrinsically tied to one another. Um, whether or not we're talking about highways, one of the biggest perpetuators of white supremacy in the history of our country, or whether or not um, you know we're talking about the other side of the tracks, um, you know, transportation is not neutral, and transportation has been used over centuries in our country um, to segregate, to divide, uh, to discriminate. And so I think folks have to start realizing that that transportation work isn't neutral. And in fact, if we're not, actively trying to dismantle um, forms of, of white supremacy. We're just perpetuating it with our transportation work. And again, I think that's that's starting to come up more and more. And I think that's largely being led by by women, um, people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ folks, and, and a lot of spaces in transportation being led by black women. Yeah. 
So Rashida, um, you're a law professor and done all these super impressive things. Uh, walk us through your background. Um, I, like Tamika, have been a winding road to this point. So um, I actually graduated law school and my first job was at Facebook and it was a terrible experience, <laughs> um, which drove me back, go to, back into civil rights law. Um, and I ended up working at a number of nonprofits on a range of civil rights issues from criminal justice, fair housing, school desegregation. And when I um, was working at the New York office, the New York affiliate of the ACLU, it was at the time that they wanted to build out more work dealing with surveillance technologies. Um, privacy and big data. And most of that work was focused more on um, police use of surveillance technologies. But because I was in a lucky position to be a generalist, I was also working on school desegregation issues where I saw algorithms were coming up as a solution to address um, decades of school segregation and similar in housing. There's a number of big data and algorithmic technologies there. So I started to become more interested in how technology was being put forth as a silver bullet solution to a number of complex and often systemic um, social justice issues. So I actually come into this work being a primary critic in that I've fought against a lot of smart city efforts here in New York City, um, or have been very critical about private-public partnerships between the tech industry and government. And it's not because, as I, I often get labeled as a technophobe because I'm highly critical, um, and I'm not. I think the issue is I. I do actually think there are solutions where technology can be quite helpful, but often who's making the decisions about what social problems we use technology to solve and who bears the burden when those technologies fail to meet expectations um, often are fairly racialized in that it's mostly white and male individuals that are picking where we apply tech and it's mostly women, communities of color, people with disabilities, low-income communities that are bearing the brunt when these technologies fail. So I came to Lacuna and have been really interested in this company and the work that we're um, working towards because I think it's an opportunity to sort of rebalance whose interests are being centered. And um, I think we're sort of in a pivotal moment where we can start seeing um, more I guess, constructive outcomes rather than a lot of the horror stories that we often see in the news. So I guess for, for both of you, um, I guess with Lacuna as the backdrop to it, how would policy work? How, what would the kind of dynamic be between cities and micromobility companies in the transportation space um, in terms of balance of power, and then what kind of tools do cities need to actually do the, the job you think they need to do? Well, first, I think you need to understand how, um, like, a lot of smart city projects and private-public partnerships typically come into play. And it's, the, and it's usually the framing that I think most of us are familiar with in that some disruptive technology comes in promising a lot of opportunities and then we see it doesn't actually play out. And it's often cities are playing catch up and trying to figure out how do we fix things after the fact rather than proactively being part of that discussion from the front and, and being able to enforce existing policies or even modify. And I think what Lacuna brings to the table is it actually leverage or levels that playing field by digitizing city policy in a way that the cities can see what's actually happening when um, mobility and tech companies come in and offer services to constituents 
and can actually um, play in a different role than they have been and be a little bit more proactive. Yeah, and Tamika, I mean, I'm sure in all the different roles you had in, in transportation advocacy, you know, you thought a lot about, you know, here's how things ought to be structured and here's what would make it a lot better. Um, now that you're on the board of directors of a company that's, that's trying to do that, you know, where do you want to go with it? Yeah, you know, for me, joining this board was partially because I think too often in these spaces, and, and Rashida and I have talked about this a lot, you know, transportation as is, is an industry is historically very white. Technology as an industry is historically very white. So when you overlap these two things um, that are critically important to the way that our society presently functions, um, you have this very white space. And too often, I think there are a ton of folks of color who are on the outside looking in saying something seems wrong about this, um, but people don't talk to us or they talk over us or they're like, well, you just wouldn't understand the technology. And that's not because there aren't folks of color out there um, who understand the technology. It's just that they're not necessarily always being listened to. And so I think for us, you know, and, and for me, part of it was, I, I, I'm not sure, right? Like, uh, like we, don't, we don't know what could, could happen with this technology, but I don't wanna sit on the sidelines and continue to watch my community be harmed by something in which no one is giving them a voice to, to speak to. And, and I think whether or not I'm talking about as an advocate or a private consultant or on the board of a, of a company like Lacuna, for me, what it's really about is the fact that, that there, there are tools, right? There, there are things that we can provide, but ultimately, whenever folks ask me, what, you know, what do we need to make change? We need a lot of different ingredients, but one of them is we need courage from cities. We need courage from our elected officials, and so part of what Lacuna can do is help you know, fill up that toolbox full of tools, but ultimately, we have to realize that a sidewalk is a public right away. And whether or not we're talking about scooters or whether or not we're talking about sidewalk dining after the pandemic, these are our public spaces. And so cities have to start thinking about how do we serve these different constituencies? How do we serve the restaurant? How do we serve the folks in the wheelchairs who now can't will through? How do we serve the people who want to use the scooters? How do we serve the people who physically can't use the scooters or are too scared to use the scooters? But how do we make all of these things work together? And, and we provide tools to help do that. And so I think, you know, yes, there are, there, there's policy, there's ideas, there's practically, you know, there's algorithms, there's many, there's many things that we can do, but we also need elected officials to say that our job is to serve the public. And in these public spaces, our streets, our sidewalks, our airspace, whatever it may be, we have to start owning that it is our job to serve and not just be responsive, but be thoughtful and proactive about how we shepherd the public space. And how much do you think that policymakers now, and this could be both on micromobility, but also, you know, Rashid, you talked about algorithms and housing, kind of both understand that they can use technology to create tools to deal with equity um, and their comfort level with it. Well, no, I, I think it's tough to answer because it's like, you know, cities aren't monolithic, so we can only speak from the, um 
city, basically. <laughs> Take New York yeah. and LA. Just as, um, as a... And I, I, so I think to be upfront, there are sort of like knowledge and information asymmetries in that if you go into most local governments and you were like, what is an algorithm? I'm sure less than 50% of the people can answer <laughs> that question. Um, so I think there is sort of a learning curve around technology and the best ways to use it within government. But I do think there are many local officials who understand technology as a tool, as Tamika said, that can be used to leverage and allow them to be um, less reactive to change. But um, I think you also, it, there's like a range of literacy issues because even if you had the most like tech fluent policymakers, you have to also make sure that cons constituents and consumers also understand what's at stake. Um, and there's means for their interest to be heard. So I'm, I'm kind of not answering your question. I can acknowledge that. I just think there's a lot of layers to unpack there, which yeah, well, layers, and and even if if we just take New York and LA, it's it's subjective, right? I mean, e even if you just take those two cities and focus on transportation, I think you have a mayor in Garcetti, from my perspective, who has seemed to be pretty proactive in thinking about uh, transportation, you know, both from an equity standpoint, but also just from an economic development standpoint, quality of life. Um, and even though I think the Blasio, New York, Polly, his transportation commissioner, was was pretty good. Um, just wasn't something that he, as a mayor, really spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, so, yeah, so there's there's a lot of variables here. Um, yeah, I think you have two cities that have, and and when Polly was there, had um, pretty dynamic women um, leading the way who I think are thoughtful about these things. I, I think where the learning curve actually is, you asked what the level of comfort is. I think part of the learning curve is not even about technology. It's about this way... That, that sometimes I think folks using technology don't understand um, a basic equity principle that it's not always the intent, it's the impact, right? And I think that's where a big learning curve is that oftentimes with technology, um, the, the motivations and the intent might be pure and you might wanna help people and you might wanna help solve a problem that we didn't even know we had or you might wanna help solve a problem that we all know we have and be really thoughtful about how you have technology to do it. But I think sometimes where the learning curve is is what, what people don't realize is that um, what they intend to do with the technology may not be how it's used. And folks like to throw them their hands up and say, well, that's not what I meant to do. But we have to start realizing again, like if you throw a Frisbee at somebody and it hurts them, it doesn't matter if you meant to do it, you did it. And so how do you start working from that place? And I think that's that's something that needs to really be held and centered. And I also think we're, a lot of the times technology is used to sort of fix or address really complex issues. So if you're only using technology to apply at one decision point, there's a million of different options that can fall from that and often sort of the varied consequences can't be anticipated by all parties. But then if you don't have mechanisms to sort of redress harm or issues, once they do emerge, it sort of compounds the overall problems. So it's, I think it's like you both have um, different sort of competencies within government that present their own challenges, but then also a problem of how do you deal with 
like very big problems that have very big consequences and um, that are not dispersed evenly throughout society. Often they fall on groups that are already marginalized and already dealing with a lot of other social inequities. So it's not always an easy solution um, once you do identify the problem. So I want to pivot to uh, like almost a case study, which is uh, Toronto and Sidewalk Labs, which is, you know, one of the more famous ones in this sector. And I'm just curious that if both if if Sidewalk had come to the two of you or if the city of Toronto had come to the two of you and said, what what should we be doing there? How could can this work? How should we make it work? What should we be thinking about? Um, what would you advise each of them? to talk to their actual constituents. <laughs> I think like I think that's part of the problem. And, and that and this is often like a problem within the tech space too of like outsourcing expertise to two people to solve a problem for a place we don't even live in. Like I think part of the issue with sidewalk and why there was so much backlash is because no one was consulted. It was just the project was preordained by people in a closed door session. And then after the fact, all of these sort of glaring omissions came um, to light, some of which, not, I don't think all of the problems with that project could have been remedied by community consultation up front, but I think it could have engendered um, more buy-in and at least could have helped them focus the project towards problems that um, residents of Toronto actually faced. Too, too often, I think, it's not just technology companies. I think it's, again, people with good intent. They come in uh, as, as white knights saying, we really want to fix this thing. We want to empower folks. Um, and and you, can't, you can't do that, right? Um, you, have to, you have to ask people. Because if you come in and say, we're going we're gonna to fix this, and we're going to do this whole project, and we're going to make everything better, and then you look around, and people are like, but we didn't even want that. Or you fixed it, but we didn't know that was for us because no one ever talked to us. Um, and so I think that there has to be, uh, there has to be this realization that that folks don't need saviors, right? Folks need to be trusted. Folks need to be collaborated with. Folks need to be consultant, and folks need to know that their expertise as being the folks who are there every single day um, can be validated and can be used to lead processes and that they can be paid for it. Like if someone wanted to come to one of us, I would have been like, don't y'all have people there you could pay because you probably yeah, do. I suspect so. Um, flipping over to Washington, you know, we now have a, a secretary of transportation who's young and, and seemingly, you know, more sophisticated around technology. It felt to me like we had a DOT that was kind of stagnant for four years, which maybe compared to that administration was 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 not bad. Um, but uh, what do you think Buttigieg should, should really be focused on, especially within the world of kind of federal regulation uh, of major technologies like autonomous cars, autonomous trucks, delivery drones, stuff like that? I mean, I'll, I'll start. I think I think there is a lot of excitement around the secretary. And I, you know, as, as a Midwesterner, as, as a queer person, like I share the excitement, I think, as a millennial, right? Like I, I share the excitement and and what his appointment can represent and and what it can show young queer kids from the Midwest about our potential, um, the ceilings that that you know we can we can break through. Um, with that being said, I think that I think the optimism is high. There is there is hope, and I think he is saying all the right things, and not just about you know no longer having a department that is only focused on highways and cars, um, but multimodal transportation, um, emerging mobility, seeing some of the things that he championed um, as a mayor. 
all of these things um, give hope that for those of us who care about emerging technology and transportation, there is a friend in the department who's gonna be super thoughtful about how to integrate this work. And I think for those of us who care about equity, he's also been saying equity in, in every interview. And so hope springs optimistic, but you're sitting on a call with two black women who have been hopeful many times, and at the end of the day, often it's other black women who are saving the day. So I'm also just curious, like, who is he going to surround himself with? Who's he gonna? Um, who's he gonna listen to? Who's gonna be part of the decision making conversations? Um, and and going back to Toronto and and Sidewalk Labs, um, who who are we listening to on the ground? I think that's one of the things exciting about having a mayor, someone who understands um, local government and the importance of local government and the role that local government has to and should play in transportation policies. Um, but I am, I am optimistically hopeful, um, but, but also, um, you know, I, I don't place all of my hope of being saved in white people because it doesn't always work out for me. Everything Tamika said in that, I also don't place all my hope in Washington as well. So I hope the fact that he is, was a former mayor of a city in the Midwest and understands kind of what is often overlooked in policymaking in Washington means that he knows new people need to be part of at the table and part of these conversations. So you know, Biden's been talking about an infrastructure bill. It always feels like the kind of thing that maybe could get bipartisan support for kind of obvious political reasons. Um, two, two questions. So one is, are you guys worried that they'll pass a bill like it's still the 1980s where they're focused on bridges and roads and tunnels and completely miss the ball and all the actual things that are happening, you know, now in, in, in mobility. Um, and, and two, in terms of equity, uh, if, if the Congress, if the president said, okay, how do we shape this infrastructure bill in a way that really does take this into account? Um, what do they do? And whoever, whoever wants to be first, jump in. Yeah, so I, I go because I'm a little bit more conflicted in this question in that I don't think it's a bad thing, I, honestly, to focus on highways, bridges, and tunnels because a lot of them are expired. And as Tamika mentioned in her um, introduction, it's like those were the mechanisms by which a lot of the current residential segregation in, that we experience in most cities um, was concretized. So in some ways, if we're thinking about equity, then we do need to think about infrastructure in highways, bridges, and tunnels. And I say that in part two because like I worked on this project years ago um, in Syracuse where it was focused on the highway construction, but looking at it, at it as a means of addressing decades of residential segregation, school segregation, and many other forms of systemic racism that um, were concretized in that city when that highway was built. So I think there's many ways to look at infrastructure and transportation um, and see potential for both, I guess, atoning and addressing um, forms of systemic racism. And there's ways to that technology can be part of that conversation or can actually be an intervention. Um, but I, I think it's like we need to be a little bit more dynamic in thinking and that it doesn't have to be a zero sum game, but you can do both. What do you think, Tamika? I, I agree with that. I mean, <laughs> I I absolutely agree. And I think I think that's one of the, the hardest things about this work, this this mindset shift we need from this zero sum game, right? Like I think I think we have to understand that 
that we we have to figure out how to do both, right? Like th there's an urgency there. We we need to figure out um, how not to always be stuck in the scarcity of resources and the scarcity of what we have, um, but to realize that you know we're in a well-resourced country. There are a ton of smart people. There is technology. Um, there are advocates. There are, are policy wonks. We have all the tools we need um, to be successful. Um, we need a will. We need a will to do it. Um, and, and I think that's really important to remember. Okay. All right, last question. Uh, so my consulting firm is running one of the campaigns uh, for the mayor of New York for Andrew Yang, who's currently sitting in, in first place, um, don't know if you guys have candidates you're supporting or not, but e either way, um, as we're forming our transportation policies, what would you, what should we be looking at? I, I'll, I'll start, uh, Rashida, since I guess I'm more of the transportation wonk. Um, you know, I think, it, I think as you all are looking at your transportation policies, and I think as any of the mayoral candidates and, and, New York are, are looking at transportation policies. It shouldn't surprise you that one of the yeah. things we're going to say is talk to people, right? Like, yeah. like, what do people actually need? And then I think something really important that happened during the pandemic um, that I hope doesn't stay in the pandemic um, was the way in which we decided um, some folks for the first time that you have to be talking to the Department of Public Health and the Department of Transportation and the Department of um, Aging and the Department of, right? Like we had this, this opinion of like, we gotta get everybody together looking at these things intersectionally. And so for me, I really need transportation folks to realize that it, it, it is all about that intersectionality. If we're gonna talk about climate change and the crisis that, that faces our country, transportation has to be a part of that. We have to be talking about GHG emissions. If we're gonna talk about housing unaffordability and housing instability and people experiencing homelessness, we have to realize that if people can't get two things. We can't talk about economic mobility without mobility. We can't talk about access to vaccines if people can't get to vaccines. And so I hope folks that are trying to take on transportation and this this next uh, generation of, of leadership realize that, that transportation, you know, I'll end how I started, is this prism through which we should be seeing all of these other issues. Um, and, and like many issues, um, listen to the folks who are most impacted. Stop treating uh, transportation, especially public transportation, like it's a, a fringe benefit, like it's a nice to have. Like realize that, again, we were just in a pandemic where we deemed so many different things and people essential. And, and one of the things that was essential is a lot of those folks we were depending on rely on public transportation. And if they rely on public transportation, we all rely on it. So let's start treating transportation like it is one of the most central um, pieces of the puzzle and 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 solving some of these biggest issues, including um, racial injustice and white supremacy. That's a tough act to follow. Uh <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I was wondering a little bit how you were going to do it, I have to say. To me, it was yeah, no, I was just like nodding ahead and I'm like, I agree with all of that. So I'll just add one minor point. <laughs> and that's, I think there is a fascination with um, sort of the wide array of digital tools that are available um, to solve a number of issues, transportation being one. And I definitely encourage policymakers to consider them, but not just towards building like this future of 2050 where people assume we'll have autonomous vehicles and everything else, but actually looking at how digital tools and working across government to solve 
a number of societal problems can be used not only to solve, um, to also solve sort of these systemic issues we keep bringing up, because I don't think we can move forward as a society and continue to think that segregation, lack of access to resources and opportunities um, will just solve itself without direct, without leadership or without um, direct ideas that are trying to address the concerns of all communities. Cool. That's great. Hey guys, I think we covered it. Thank you so much both for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Cool.